everybody. Welcome to the Theology Taco podcast. My name is Tim. This is a secret episode because I'm not releasing it on social media, and I also told everybody in the last episode that I wouldn't be back for another three episodes where I'll be rebranding the podcast. Well, I got a new microphone, and I wanted to fart around with it, so I'm just going to read to you a Bible study that I prepared for my church, and it is covering Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Uh, So let me read that to you now. Okay, so it starts. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay, so now that we have heard that, we can get on with the study. A lot of what I pulled from the study comes from William Barclay's commentary on the Ephesians, and some from N.T. Wright, and then other stuff from F.F. Bruce, and then some of my own stuff. It's not wholly original. I just thought you should be aware of that. I want to be as transparent as possible, but also let you know that when I interpret the Bible and prepare a study for it, that I want to use scholarly articles too so that we can really get close to the meaning of the text for back then and today. All right. So verse 15, verse 15 through 17 is all about marks of the church. So unity is important for the church in Ephesus, and Paul is writing to maintain the unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. These two bodies who were formerly separated are now united because of the blood of Christ. So they are the church. In verse 15, Paul is giving hints at what he believes the two hallmarks of the church should be and what those hallmarks do. The first is loyalty. So it's faith in Christ. Faith is not necessarily agreeing that God exists, but trusting in God's promises. So um, it was probably not very easy to be loyal considering all of the competition of the Greco-Roman beliefs and uh, the possible persecution. Uh, we, uh, Ephesus was a major um, port. It was uh, very economically powerful. Um, politically, it was powerful because Rome liked to establish strong centers of government in those powerful trade cities. And then it had a strong religious life, too, because there was the Temple of Diana. I think if you turn to, oh, it's Acts 17 or 18, possibly 19. I'm not going to look it up right now. Where there's that uh, riot in Ephesus that you can read about. So the second mark of the church is love. 
Loving Christ is, of course, important, but through Christ, uh, but through loving Christ, the true church will love other people as well. In the verse, the word for love that Paul uses is a tense of the word agape, which can mean uh, it's the it's really seen as the highest form of love. It's the highest expression of love. It's pure, selfless, and unconditional. And we see this word in other New Testament books that describe Christ's death. Another interesting point about this word is that it appears in 1 John 4, 8, when the author says God is love. He uses the the same form of the word uh, agape, which leads us to the conclusion that God is the source of this kind of love that we wouldn't know that kind of love unless God showed us that love. So for Paul, both the loyalty and the faith, uh, uh, loyalty and faith rather, and the love for others go hand in hand when considering the true church. So one can be loyal to God, but not have love. And unfortunately, there are uh, many examples that we can pull from history. One example is how the Pharisees had loyalty to God, but they were contemptuous towards others they thought were less loyal. And we can see that in their attempts to trap Jesus, little did they know who he was, uh, mostly because of their spiritual blindness. But let's go on. Another example were those in the Roman Catholic Church that were part of the Spanish Inquisition, or the Inquisition at large, who would hunt down people they would they believed uh, committed heresy, and they would torture them into recanting. And then I would say that even the Salem witch trials fall into that category. I lived in Salem for a while, so I would say the history that I learned there lines up with that. Uh, So you can have all the loyalty and faith in the world, but without love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you're just a noisy gong. So there are some scriptural cross-references that I think contextually line up with what Paul is saying in uh, these verses, in verse 15. Uh, The first one is from 1 John 4, verses 11 and then 20, and then John 15, 12, and then 1 Peter 4, 8, and then Romans 12, 9 through 17. So let's get on to verse 16, which is about Thanksgiving, not the holiday. And reading this makes me hungry for Thanksgiving dinner. So the transition from verse 15 to 16 tells us what Paul believes the church in Ephesus uh, displayed these marks of the true church, which makes Paul, which Paul makes sure they understand how thankful he is. So giving thanks is a huge part of Paul's ministry. Uh, making sure everyone knows that contentment in everything is grounded in giving thanks to God. The theme of thanksgiving can be seen across several of Paul's letters, including Philippians, Colossians, First Thess- Thessalonians, and Second Corinthians. Uh, in this case of a mixed group of believers, however, it's most, li- most likely encouraging to hear that, hey, uh, he's thankful for us. So I thought that was pretty nice. Uh, Anyways, let's move on to uh, verse 17, uh, which is the importance of prayer 
and the subject of prayer. Hmm, that must be a typo. So whenever Paul mentioned, mentions thanks, you'll most likely see prayer in the same sentence. As with faith and love, prayer and thanksgiving go hand in hand. The Ephesians are the subject of thanksgiving, but God is the object of it because it's him who the it's in God who the Ephesians have grown. Their success is because of God's work and their cooperation with it. Uh-oh, synergism. Not just okay, let's not go let's not go down that road. So the second part of his prayer, however, is is that they keep growing. And Paul knows that they can do this uh, if God supplies them with wisdom, and especially if they ask for it. So wisdom here for Paul isn't just the ability to make good decisions. Paul uses the word Sophia. The characteristics for Sophia imply a knowledge of God that goes deep and keeps getting deeper. So it's not just intellectual knowledge it's also relational knowledge the experiential knowledge that they get from uh, relationship with with god um, and there are a few implications we can get from this the first is that god wants his people to think and reflect on their relationship with it that makes sense to me uh, the second is god wants his people to teach others what the bible says and especially why it says it the third is God wants his people to keep learning. So no doctor gives up studying because they have a medical degree. Isn't that true? So that's a mark or a sign of maturity. He wants uh, his people to be mature. And part of that is to keep on learning. So um, some scriptural cross references that I think uh, line up with the context of what he's saying here can be found in Proverbs 1.7. And then Hebrews 5, 12 through 13. And then 2 Peter 3, 18. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Moving on. Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 19. As I said earlier, Paul suggested that there are two, two marks already that Christians' lives uh, signify the true church as and should always be paired faith and lo faith slash loyalty and love. I just said that Paul supplied Paul believed that wisdom supplied by God, which is sought in prayer, will help the Ephesians grow into those two marks. But there is also a third mark. So in these verses, Paul continues to explain his prayer to God for the Ephesians, uh, which he wants them to know. So has anybody heard the saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same? You know, that kind of reflects a battle between light and darkness that always seems to be waging. We see this play out in public life with optimism and pessimism. You know, we have this innate desire for things to get better, so we create this uh, ideal utopia that we're trying to get to, but then being human... Uh, we find ourselves falling short of that goal. Things happen whether through our own decisions or because we just live in a fallen world. So it seems like uh, we're headed for a dystopia sometimes. You know, currently right now, as I'm recording this, there's a lot of, uh, there's always that political turmoil and 
in the United States. And then we've got things like the coronavirus that are going on and causing a lot of concerns and people are freaking out about that. So whenever we can't get to a place that we long for, we kind of get this dread and despair where it seems like we're just always going to be headed for a dystopian future. But here's the good news. There's something special about the words utopia and dystopia, and that has to do with their original meaning. So utopia, now I'm not saying that these words appear in the Bible, but I'm just trying to give you some exposition about these words and these ideas that we create in our head. So utopia. Uh, Topia in the Greek means a, a place, but the U in front of it is a negative prefix. So utopia literally means uh, not a place. Those who dream of a utopian world or society or whatever they're striving for, uh, they're striving for a place that doesn't exist or that we can't get to. So no wonder people are depressed and no wonder we keep assigning scapegoats for not re reaching that place. It's no wonder uh, that people feel or think that we're headed towards chaos. But then let's look at dystopia. So obviously we've established that a dystopian future is the opposite of utopia. Since we know that topia means not a place, dystopia means bad not a place. It's a conceptual nightmare that although it kind of looks like we could get there, it never becomes a reality. Paul doesn't want his audience to place their hope or their future in human philosophies or human-made concepts of society, which is difficult because those things ultimately let people down and it causes despair, as we've, I've said earlier. He wants his audience to place their ultimate hope in the person of Jesus. So Christ and the kingdom that he brings and all that it entails is our eschatological destiny. Eschatology is the study of uh, the end things. Jesus is our, our future. The kingdom of God is our future. So we place our, our hope, our destiny in that eschatological end. If you are more interested in fleshing that out, you can look at this theologian named Paul Tillich, who says that uh, our being, our being, our very essence, our the reason why we exist is our our, our place in, in the universe. It finds its origin, but also its destiny in Christ. Um, he was kind of a very uh, promiscuous guy, but he had. I think that train of thought that he had was pretty good. Uh, so we can place our hope in Christ uh, uh, bringing heaven to us instead of us trying to scramble up to heaven by our, our own methods. We, we saw what that looked like with the religious rulers of Jesus' time, always pl placing that heavy yoke uh, on the people uh, of Israel. Uh, Paul, so Paul wants his audience and us too to be filled with this hope in such a way that it enlightens us, that we understand the kind of glory we will be receiving in the end, but also what that glory does to our hope in the present. So the Greek word for enlighten is photizo, which means to light up.
but it's also very similar to the Hebrew counterpart. And I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'll just say it's ore. And one of its meanings is lightning. So when it's, you know, when it's super dark outside, but there's a bolt of lightning, how that light floods the sky all around you. Well, that's the kind of hope that Paul is getting at here. He wants to have, he wants Christians to have such a hope in Christ that it floods your life with the understanding of what our ultimate purpose and destination is. So there's, there was this cool quote in uh, Barclay's commentary that said, if the Christian message is true, the world is not on its way to disintegration, but consummation. So uh, that means that Jesus, he initiated the uh, kingdom of God through his death and resurrection and then his empowerment of the church through the Holy Spirit. But when he comes back, he's consummating the kingdom. The kingdom will be realized. So as far as hope goes, some scriptural cross-references that I think are worth checking out are Isaiah 40, verse 31, Colossians 1, verse 27, and then Philippians 1, 6, and then John 16, 33, where Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it, but gives you the promise that he overcomes all that junk. So let's move on to uh, verses 19 through 20. Uh, it's all about the resurrection power, baby. So the hope that Paul wants his believers to have in Christ is grounded in God's power. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that power is a large theme in this book because Ephesus, like I said earlier, was a place of social and economic success and also religiously. But for Paul, the largest display of power wasn't the power that emperors, politicians, or even the various deities that the Greeks had. It was a cosmic power that only God wields, and that's the power that raised Christ from the dead. So in Paul's time, you know, in, in Christ's time as well, Judaism, which was called Second Temple Judaism, didn't teach that bodily resurrection was possible before God's return. That's why everyone in the Gospels was so surprised and freaking out when they saw Jesus alive. And it's still a big deal because not a lot of people know that point. However, Judaism and other religious beliefs did think that one could be exalted to heaven spiritually. But God's power is set apart in that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. Uh, this fact is so important to Paul that in the letter to the 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, he hinges the entirety of the Christian faith on the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Christ. In fact, he says, what we, if it didn't happen, what we preach would be useless, and we should be pitied if it wasn't true. So the, the risen Christ now has all authority now given to him, which is what the metaphor, the right hand of God means. It's not just a physical location. So now Jesus has the same authority and power uh, as the Father, as he did. Oh, all right, well, let's not get into the incarnation uh, theology here. So the, <laughs> moving on, uh, the Holy Spirit, resurrection, and power. The, uh, the power that God raised Christ from the dead was through the Holy Spirit. 
this is important for two reasons. So we, when we receive salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, and that's how we take part in the uh, the divine life of of the uh, Trinity of our Trinitarian God. Excuse me. Since that Holy Spirit has that kind of power, and listen up, I'm not a cessationist here. Okay, since the Holy Spirit has that kind of power. We have access to the Holy Spirit's power because it gives it gives us that power. I should say he gives us that power or she. I don't know. Let's not get into that theology debate either. <laughs> but uh, we have access to that power. Uh, so the hope that we place in Christ uh, for the future and how um, it benefits us now, it's not an intangible feeling or, or thing that we think nice thoughts about, but it's something that we can encounter in, and in participate in now through the Holy Spirit's power and presence with us. So the power, this power is what gives faith, hope, and love we, that we experience in Christ. It's what gives it some, some substance. It's like a deposit for the kingdom of, of God. And I try to tell people that since I'm a Pentecostal, that uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't to be like uh, how the Corinthians saw, where it says, oh, look how holy I am. I've got all these uh, gifts. Uh, so like things like speaking in tongues, prophecy, and the gift uh, of healing and other things, those are meant to be a foretaste of the kingdom to come. They're, we're giving people a preview of the kingdom of heaven now so builds up this eschatological hope that the christian community is a, a community that is this realized eschatological community yeah that's all that i wrote for this study if you have any questions any more questions you can or or comments or concern you can email me at theologytaco at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at uh, the handle is at theologytacotim. And then there's also a Facebook page, um, which you should be able to find the Theology Taco podcast. Come join that community. Uh, we'd love to have you, even though the name is changing in, in three months. But oh well. Um and then there's also a Patreon page that I have if you want to become a supporter. Thank you for joining me on this secret episode. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will have a guest host, and it'll be about holiness. And then there'll be two other guest hosts after that episode until I come back with the rebranded version of this podcast. So you have a great rest of the week. And I'll see you soon.